I don't know if you can hear it now, or how long it's been since you've heard it, or if you even have ears to hear. But if you listen carefully, you should be able to hear God praying for you. God is praying for you, even as you're seated and last night while you were asleep, when you were in your mother's womb, and through the day to your dying breath, for the saints even enduring for all eternity without ceasing, never failing, with exuberant joy, with great delight, God is praying for you. I invite you to turn with me to the great eight, Romans chapter eight, as we look at this theme from that chapter this morning. The sermon title is God is Praying for You, and I trust that as we read the text in view that you'll see exactly where we find that. Romans chapter eight, we'll pick up the reading in verse 26. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. Hear the word of the living God. Romans 8, verse 26 through 34. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So that, we, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The Word of the living God. Join me again as we ask for God's blessing as we consider this text. Father, I pray that You would allow us to hear the conversation happening even now between You and Your dear Son, the blessed Holy Spirit, as both Spirit and Son appeal to You for us. Let us hear, Lord. Cause people to have ears to hear for the first time. And cause your people to receive and believe. And to agree with what the Spirit and the Son ask on our behalf. In fact, Lord, as the sermon in a phrase, I bring to you this request. That you would cause us to add our hearty amen to whatever the Spirit prays. That You would cause us to say, do it, Lord, to whatever the Son prays for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Romans chapter 8, if you're not familiar with it, you're robbing yourself of a blessing because it is certainly one of the highest mountaintops of the Bible. It's one of those glorious chapters where so much is contained in such little space that many Christians, for good reason, 
have made it one of the most well-trodden chapters of the Bible. In fact, as a life challenge, I would encourage you to make this not only a passage that you meditate on often, but that you commit to memory. The whole chapter. It's been affectionately referred to, as I said a moment ago, the great eight, and that's for good reason. And if you're looking for encouragement today, if you need encouragement, and who among us doesn't, or if you need to be re-infused with hope in the midst of whatever challenges you're walking through and whatever it is that you're facing in your life, I recommend extended meditation on Romans chapter 8. Prayerful, thoughtful conversation with God about the phrases He says in this chapter. Well, for today's focus, we won't take the whole chapter, but we'll try to zero in on what the chapter teaches us about prayer, and specifically, not our prayer to the Lord, but the Lord's prayer on our behalf. What we learn in Romans chapter 8, as we just read, is that the Spirit is praying for us. And in addition to the person of the Holy Spirit, not only is He praying for us, but also God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for us, but we find some particulars. It's wonderful to know that He prays for us. That is the Holy Spirit. And that God the Son prays for us. But it's even more wonderful to know what He prays for us so that we can agree. What we find in this passage in the sermon in a sentence would be this. The Holy Spirit is praying for us to be like Christ. God the Son, the Lord Jesus, is praying for us on the basis of His work as the Christ. And I've got to do a little definition work. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ. So I just said, the Son is praying for us on the basis of His work as the Christ. He is the Christ. That is, He is the Messiah. He is God's anointed one. He is the long-awaited Redeemer that the Old Testament promised. He is the Savior. The Christ. And on the basis of His work as the Christ, He prays for us. The Spirit prays for us to be like Christ. The Son prays for us on the basis of His work as the Christ. Let's just take those one at a time. And the order the passage presents it to us is first, the intercession of the Spirit. And second, the intercession that is the praying of the Son. Number one, the Spirit of God is praying for you. Now, the Bible commonly uses personal pronouns. This is an English class, but I trust you know what I'm talking about, or quickly will be caught up in your, in your English class. Personal pronouns. He, she, it, we, us, our. But even more personal. You, your, yours. So when I say the Holy Spirit is praying for you, I want you to understand who the personal pronoun is that I'm referring to. Not everybody. The Holy Spirit is certainly praying. But when I say the Holy Spirit is praying for you, who who is the you? Well, in verses 26 and following, especially just verses 26 and 27, we find that the Holy Spirit is praying for believers, for those who are in Christ, for those who've turned from their sin and put their trust in the risen Jesus believing that the death of Christ is the only grounds on which God will accept sinners like us. When I say the Holy Spirit's praying for you, I mean people who have not only turned from their bad, the sin we've done, but people who have also turned from their good, their own so-called righteousness, as a reason that God should accept us. No, 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 no. The Bible teaches very clearly in the book of Romans among other places, that even our best deeds, our righteousness, is as filthy rags in God's sight. So, I'm saying the Holy Spirit is praying for people who have turned both from their sinful deeds and also all their good deeds. We've taken sides with God not only against what we've done, we've taken sides with God against who we are. 
And the Holy Spirit is praying for people who say, I'm not trusting in myself or my works of righteousness for you to like me. In fact, I'm resting in Jesus alone, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, as the only ground on which you accept me. I trust Him and not myself. So when I say the Holy Spirit's praying for you, now look carefully at verse 26 and let your eyes fall on the word intercedes. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. Well, maybe you saw the personal pronouns. Our, we, us, that's the believer. But this word intercedes, the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes, verse 26, for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Well, that's a big word, and some of you may not be familiar with that word, but intercession is a form of prayer. Prayer's a big umbrella word, and there's lots of forms of prayer. There's adoration, that is praise to God. That happened in our service earlier during the prayer time. There's some of the passages and songs that we, passages we read and songs that we sang. There's also supplication making our requests known to God. There are petitions where we would ask for particular things, the requests that are detailed out. And then there's intercession. That's a cry on behalf of ourselves or on behalf of others. The Holy Spirit Himself intercedes. That is, He prays for us. But if you'll notice that word again in verse 27, He who searches the hearts, we'll come back to that, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So I simply want to say what verse 26 and 27 say, that is, the Spirit of God is praying for you. Every believer, all the time, is always being prayed for by the Holy Spirit. If other people forget to pray for you, God never does (laughs) forget to pray for you. He helps our weakness. That's what the verse says, doesn't it? In verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. And then it qualifies what that weakness is. And how many of us might feel like this right now? The weakness that the Spirit helps in particular in His ministry of prayer for us is we don't know how to pray as we should. Have you ever not known what to pray, but you just said, Lord, help. You don't know how to put it. You don't know how to phrase it. It's, it's deeper. Even if you had a big catalog of words or you could pull your thesaurus off the shelf and put a bunch of big words together to express something of your need, you find that all those words and all that verbiage still wouldn't touch the depth of your need. It's deeper than your words can express. That's exactly what the passage says. We don't know how to pray as we should. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that are, my translation says, too deep for words. This is one big Greek word. It's not used a lot of other places in the New Testament, but it's words beyond your words. You don't have words for it. But guess who does? The Holy Spirit. But let your eyes fall on the word groanings. He intercedes. Now listen to this. He intercedes with groanings. Too deep for your words. You don't have the words. He has the deep groan. What this means is, He knows the things you need And the things that you know you need that are so deep you can't even say them, He's so identified with you. He's so intimately acquainted with you that even the deep stuff that you know you need, but it's so deep you know you don't know how to say it, the Holy Spirit is identifying with you, not way over there somewhere as a God who doesn't care about what you feel, but He Himself groans deep right in the presence of the Father for you. What a God! He helps our weakness. We often don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. But He intercedes. He intercedes. Now does it say He interceded? Or He will intercede? Nope. 
present, active, indicative. Which is why I said just a minute ago, even for the people who don't care what I'm saying right now, the Holy Spirit is present, active, indicative, praying for His people. Right now, right now, and right now, presently, He's praying for you. And that will never cease to be. He also intercedes, as I mentioned, with these deep groanings. This word groan is only used in the exact same way one other time in the Bible. It's in Acts chapter 7 when there's an account being relayed to a bunch of pagan people. And in Acts chapter 7, the verse talks about when Israel in the Old Testament was held captive for over 400 years as slaves in Egypt. 400 years. God, have you forgotten me? 400 years. Lord, what about your promises? 400 years. We're talking generations of people. 400 years. And this word appears in Acts chapter 7 to say something about God hearing the groan of Israel in Egypt. So I want to say to you, friends, for all of you who are in Christ, for all of you who know the saving love of God that comes to you through one and only one channel, that is Jesus Christ, the risen Redeemer. For those of you who are in Christ, you may feel like you're in this wasteland, this spiritual bondage, this long protracted season of leanness and spiritual lethargy or that God has forgotten you. This word is used to describe God hearing Israel's ah. They're grown. He hasn't forgotten you. With groanings that are too deep for words, this is the way the Spirit prays for you. And then finally, I want you to notice concerning the Spirit's intercession for us, this phrase at the beginning of verse 27. We've got to do some personal pronoun work again. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. So the He can't be the Spirit. Because the He is searching the hearts and He knows the mind of the Spirit. Because He, that's the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, the first He in verse 27 is none other than God the Father. But notice what the Father is doing. Searching the heart. Searching the heart. God knows our heart. It was read earlier in the service, which I didn't plan, God did, about Jesus knowing the intentions and thoughts of the hearts of the people who heard Him say, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic that got lowered down through the roof. And those people didn't like for people, didn't like for Jesus to say things like that. And they didn't say it out loud, but the text says in the Gospels that Jesus knew their heart. That's what this is talking about. The Father knows the hearts of His people. And I want you to take this with joy. I don't want you to recoil from the fact He knows your heart. In fact, I want you to fillet open your heart and say, search even deeper. Because down at the bottom of every true Christian's heart is this. I love Jesus. I want to love Jesus more. And I want all this being riddled with sin, all this stuff in here that doesn't glorify you. Down at the bottom of a Christian's heart is a, is a groan that would say, take all that displeases you away and cause anything that does, on, does honor you to be elevated. This verse says God the Father sees that at the bottom of your heart. He sees that you want to be made more and more conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. We'll get there in just a moment. He knows that you love Jesus, that you trust Jesus, that you want Christ Himself to be 
your greatest treasure, that you want to prize Him and honor Him. And if you could be done with all this sin, you would be done in a nanosecond. He sees that. He's searching your heart. And the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. And God the Father, it says in verse 27, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Not your heart, the Spirit's mind. He knows that the Spirit wants those great things to be accomplished. For you to be made more and more like the Son of God. And then the verse concludes by saying, therefore, the Spirit prays for you that way, according to the will of God. Well, what is the will of God? What is the will of God for you? Verse 27 puts it in the most explicit way that any verse in the whole Bible puts it. Now, it doesn't say this is God's will. There are eight of those verses in the New Testament. But this verse compacts them all together and it says this. Verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29 is that compact statement of God's will for you. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined, here it is, to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's the phrase. To become conformed to the image of His Son. So that He, now that's Jesus, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. The will of God for you is to conform you into the image of Christ. To shape and mold your character into Christ's likeness. Not that you would look like Him on the outside, but that you would look like Him on the inside. Deep in your heart, that you would love like He loves. That you would serve like He serves. That you would be raptured morning, noon, and night deep within your heart to bring glory to God, that your chief aim in life would be to know and enjoy the God who has loved you so much that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. This is what the Spirit is praying for you. That you would be conformed into the image of Christ so that He, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers. You know what it's like with older brothers and younger brothers? The younger brothers hear it all the time. Man, you look so much like your brother. You look so much like your father. That's the point. That Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. That is, that all of His siblings would start to look like Him. That's what the Spirit is praying for us. That we would be more and more and more conformed to the image of Christ. It is for those people, that is, those who love God, those who are called by God. It is for those people, let me say again, those who love God and are called according to the purpose of God, that God is causing. Not just figuring out a way that maybe it'll work. Actively causing everything to work together for good in your life. Even those seasons of leanness, spiritual lethargy, being captive in Egypt for 400 years. God is at work. Even when you can't see Him at work, and the illustration we've used many times that's so fitting again, we see the underside of the tapestry. But God is weaving a quilt where all these tangled threads that don't seem to make sense to us, the chaos of our life, the confusion, especially the pain and the suffering and the loss, it looks like the underside of the stitching, but when you turn it over, you see that God has woven a beautiful tapestry and He has actually caused all these things to work together for good and one day you'll see how God has woven the story together. The Spirit's praying that in all things, you and I would be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. But he's also praying, in addition to our being conformed to the image of Christ, that it would happen according to what many have called the golden chain of redemption. Look at verses 29 and 30. Verse 29 has a couple of big words. Those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. It says he did something for those people. He also predestined them. 
And then that chain carries on in verse 30. Those whom He predestined, He called. These whom He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He glorified. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. As I said, the golden chain of redemption. Many have said it's like a golden thread on which God puts these glorious pearls Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. And God is stringing together this golden chain of redemption. Now I want you to just notice one thing about these words. They're all in a certain tense. We're back to English class again. It doesn't say that He will call or will justify or will glorify. It looks like they're in the past tense, and that's appropriate because it's an aorist word in the original, which is a once done, forever accomplished, ongoing effect of this once done activity. In the aorist tense, God has foreknown us, therefore He predestined us, and therefore He called us, and therefore He justified us, and as if it's already finished, He's also in His mind glorified us. So I just wonder, when the Holy Spirit prays for us, does He pray, oh God, I, I just, I'm just asking that maybe, possibly, somehow, you'll just finish that good work you began in them. No. He's praying as if it's already done. And C.S. Lewis said, if you and I could see a glorified human being, what we will be like in heaven we would be tempted to worship each other because we will be so radiantly beautified with the glory of Jesus. And God the Holy Spirit already sees what we will be when we're fully glorified and on the basis of the reality that that is a finished deal in God's mind. It's not an if and maybe and I hope so. It is a done deal in God's mind. Those whom He foreknew, the end of the chain is glorified. He knows you will be made like Christ finally and fully forever free in the presence of God without any restraint of sin. No impediment between you and the glory of God and the enjoyment of the glory of God with the people of God for all eternity. The Holy Spirit knows that and on that basis, He prays for you to be made like Christ. He knows that it will happen. He will finish the good work that He began. So there's only one appropriate response, isn't there? Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What should we say about that? We should start asking rhetorical questions so that the whole world will shut their mouth. And so that our own sin nature will seal its lips. If God is for us like that, if God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who has existed forever in exuberant, joyful fellowship with the Father and the Son, if He's praying for me that way, if God is for me like that, deep groanings coming out of the mouth of the Holy Spirit in the presence of the Father, that I would be made like Christ and I would be kept all the way to the point of my glorification if God is for us. Who cares who's against us? Because that same God, verse 32, has some logic. This is the logic of heaven. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? You see, the Holy Spirit knows that the saints will be glorified and He prays confidently that it will happen, made like Christ, because the Holy Spirit actively aided the Son of God to walk obediently to the glory of God all the way to the cross death. The Spirit empowered the Son, Jesus, to live in obedience to the Father's commands, to accomplish everything that the Father had given Jesus to do while He was on earth, obediently all the way to the cross of Calvary. And the Spirit knowing 
that the Father has given the Son. Verse 32, He didn't spare His own Son. The Spirit knows that. The Spirit knows that God the Father gave His favorite. And here's the logic of heaven. If He's already done the most difficult thing, given His Son for you, how will He not do anything less difficult than that for you? The logic works that way in verse 32. How will He not also with Jesus give you everything you need? Now I know it's hard to believe sometimes and it's easy for people to say little spiritual phrases and tidbits to us when we are walking through tough stuff and those little tidbits don't seem to help much. But I want to say to you, not in a little pithy fortune cookie kind of way, I want to say to you in a gospel-rooted way that whatever you're going through right now, Whatever's happening inside of you right now, whatever battles you're facing internally or externally, you can know for sure on the basis of verse 32 that God is not withholding one good thing from you. In fact, on the basis of verse 28, He's weaving all of that stuff together for your good. He's causing it all to happen. And here's a challenging way to say it and certainly a challenging way to hear it. If your life circumstances were any different than they are today, you would not have the best opportunity to be conformed into the image of Christ. God's not the master chess player. Responding to my moves, your moves, Satan moves, sinners moves. No, no, no. He's the sovereign potentate of the universe. And every planet in every solar system and every little speck of dust that falls through the sky in this room is ordered by God for the good of His people. And the Spirit is praying. Jesus calls Him for good reason. Our Helper. John chapter 14. The Paraclete. The Comforter. Our Friend. The One who advocates for us in the presence of God. Well, the Spirit's praying that we would be made like Christ. And I told you that our second point, which is the closing Gospel point, God the Son is also praying for you. But He's praying, not necessarily as explicitly that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the Spirit's work of intercession. But the Son has a particular content to His prayer for you. And that is His work as the Christ. So instead of the Spirit praying, conform them to the image of Christ, Jesus is saying, because I am the Christ, He's advocating on our behalf. Let me show you in verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Here it is. Who also intercedes for us. If you just trace the verse back, you'll find out that that's Jesus. The same Jesus who died and was raised. The same Jesus who's at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. Now do you see the connection between His intercession and His work as the Christ. His prayer, His intercession, follows His Gospel labors. That is, His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So when Jesus pleads before the Father, He's pleading things like Romans 8.1. Never condemn them, Father, because they're in Me. He's praying things like Romans 8, 29, uh, 39. Let them never be separated from your love, Father, because I've died for them. I was buried. I've been raised again for them. I'm now in my present session raised and exalted and ascended to your right hand to represent them. He's saying, let my merits stand in their place as the reason that you forever accept them. The Spirit says make them like Christ. Jesus the Son says because I am the Christ, never let them be forsaken. Do you remember when Moses prayed in Exodus 32 on behalf of all the Israelites? 
Alas, this people has committed a great sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, do it. But if not, blot me out from your book what you have written. Moses said, what? Strike my name out of the book you've written if you're not going to forgive their sin? And Moses' name was not blotted from that book. But the true and greater Moses was struck out. He took the strike and the blow. He was banished from the presence of God at Calvary so that your name would never be removed. And now, and now as He sits in heaven's throne room, He sits as our great advocate and intercessor to say, because I was blotted out, never blot them out. Charge their debt to my account. Or as Esther, our sister in the Old Testament, went into the presence of the king to advocate for her kinsman Israel when they were facing genocide, she secured their pardon. So also has Jesus barged Himself into the presence of the King in all His ascended glory after His resurrection when we were facing condemnation and eternal death separated from God in a real place called hell. Jesus secures our pardon. Moses wasn't blotted out, but Jesus was. Esther goes in like Christ goes in so that the people will be saved. He is pleading the merits of His own blood and righteousness for us. He is saving sinners forever by His intercession. That's why we sing hymns like Charity Bancroft's Before the Throne of God Above. I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. The focus of the Son's intercession for you is, verse 34, His death, His burial, His resurrection. This is why Jesus Christ is commonly referred to as the great high priest. It's the theme of the book of Hebrews. It's the point of what he's doing now. There's a difference between, there's a difference between a priest and a prophet. A prophet speaks to men for God. A priest speaks to God for men. Jesus is both, but in his work as priest, he's speaking to God for you. And Ian Bounds says, to talk to men for God is a great thing, but to talk to God for men is greater still. And in Hebrews 7, listen to the intercession of Jesus for you. Therefore, Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him because He always lives to make intercession for them. He's your priest. So just as we said concerning the Holy Spirit, what I mean is right now and right now and right now He's interceding for you. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Why do all Christians persevere to the end? How are we all kept from abandoning the faith? The ultimate answer is not because we're good at believing the Gospel or preaching the Gospel to ourselves day after day and we should fight to do those things. The ultimate answer is not in us, but in Him. The reason every true born-again child of the King perseveres to the end without abandoning, abandoning the faith is because Jesus constantly intercedes for us. In Luke chapter 6, He spent all night in prayer before He chose the twelve. And we're told that he knew from the beginning that Judas, who would betray him, was one of them. And it was for Judas, I believe, that he spent the whole night in prayer. Him? Him? Jesus knew that he would be a reprobate. Jesus knew that he would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And he wasn't praying prayers of keeping grace over Judas. He was receiving the Father's will. And He was interceding for the faithful eleven. And we find in Luke chapter 22, the way He prays for Christians, Simon, Simon, Jesus says to Peter, 
Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I love that. Demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Why did Peter not abandon the faith like Judas? Because there's verses like Hebrews chapter 2 in the Bible where in Hebrews 2, Jesus says, Jesus says, I, speaking to God, I will put my trust in you and so will all the children you've given me. Do you know why your trust is in Him? Because He's praying that your trust would never not be in Him. That's why Peter was kept and that's why we're kept. In Mark 1.35, he gets up early in the morning, Jesus does, and goes to a solitary place to pray. We know that he prays for all believers in John 17. He wants us to be unified with one another, with no impediment between our fellowship, growing together in more Christ-likeness, aiding and encouraging and cultivating an atmosphere where people can take one step closer to Jesus, unity with each other, just like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are unified perfectly. Jesus prays that way for us in John chapter 17, that we may be one, even as the Father and the Son are one, so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. Luke 22.44, Jesus prays this way, Not My will, but Yours be done. And because Jesus prayed that way, not His own will, but the will of the Father, that is, that He drink down the cup of God's wrath at the cross of Calvary, that He become a curse for us, or as Romans 8 begins, in verse 3, one of the most perplexing verses in the whole Bible, what the law could not do, weak as it was, through my flesh, your flesh. You couldn't keep it. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What did He do? He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, here comes the hard part. God condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. The word condemned, go do your word study. It's the word damned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why not? Because Jesus took it all. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed so that God could say to you, on the basis of the prayer of Jesus and the condemnation He endured, God can say to you now, you will never be condemned. You will never be separated from My love. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places belongs to you forever in Christ because of His intercession for you. This is why we select songs to sing around here. We don't pick our favorite tunes. We could care less about the supplemental surrounding sounds. But we want to learn to sing again. And it is an indictment on the church that there are so few songs being written today about the priesthood of Christ. But we go and we try to find them about His great work of intercession. And as a result, we sing lyrics like Charles Wesley's Arise, My Soul, Arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on His hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds He bears. Can you count them? One, two, three, four, five. Five bleeding wounds He bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for Me. Forgive Him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. His Father hears Him pray. His dear anointed one, He cannot turn away the presence of His Son. His Spirit 
answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. How should you respond? One is you should just say, Father, whatever the Holy Spirit prays for me, I agree with that. Whatever God the Son prays for me, would you please do that? Rest in the prayers of God for you. Rest in the prayers of God for you. To rest, you have to learn how to agree. You have to learn how to say amen. Look at the prayers of the New Testament. What are the things that Paul prayed for the church at Corinth, or the church at Philippi, or the church at Ephesus? What kinds of things were the churches in Acts praying for the other churches in Acts? And to agree, to rest, to say amen to the kinds of things God prays for you, Just start finding the content of some of these biblical prayers that we would increase in the knowledge of God. That we would know the will of God. That we would walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would flee sexual immorality. On and on is the way God prays for us. When we say look to Christ as an application to every sermon, what we mean is particularly look at aspects of His glory. Have you stared long into the prism of the beautiful diamond of Christ, the prism which is a a, a particular reflection of His beauty, that is how He is praying for you, and still meditating on the intercession of Christ, said, in every dark distressful hour, when sin and Satan join their power, let this dear hope repel the dart that Jesus bears us on His heart. Great Advocate, Almighty friend, on Him our humble hopes depend. Our cause can never, never fail. For Jesus pleads and must prevail. Rest in the prayers of God for you. And finally, let's grow. Let's ask God to cause us to grow in prayer as our most special privilege of redemption. The highest privilege of redemption is not that God speaks to you in a monologue through a book. That's an amazing deposit. You have the words of God in your lap. That is indeed a special privilege. But the most special privilege of redemption is you get to have a conversation with Him. You get to have communion with God. And when I say let's pray that we would grow, in our exploiting these privileges of prayer, I mean together. If you're so proud that you can't ask a brother or sister to pray with you, acquaint yourself again with Jesus because that's what He's always doing. And the saints want to grow in that. If you're self-conscious and other things about hearing your voice out loud, we're very complex creatures and I'm not trying to push anybody down who has those kind of inhibitions, but I am saying a direct application to the reality that the Holy Spirit always intercedes and the Son always intercedes is the more you spend time with them, you'll begin to intercede. And Tim Keller put it well when he said, the only person concerning our privilege of prayer, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. And so Romans 8 says what we should do about it. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It's one thing for you to commune with Him personally, and we should, and I don't want to minimize that. But this chapter is not written to individuals. It's written to the church at Rome. We cry, Abba, Father. We learn to pray together. Corporately and interpersonally. With our children and our spouses. With our friends and acquaintances. When we get together in our small groups. Formally or informally around our dinner tables. Or however it may be. As Vijay Sastry, our Indian fan, said when he preached here many years ago. And it impacted me deeply. He said, Jesus, when He was on earth, was more at home in prayer than any other place on the planet. He didn't have a home, but He had a home. 
in prayer. William Law said, you will never love a man so much as when you pray for him. Let us learn to pray for each other. Dust off our prayer directories. Start going down the list of names and children. Pray great things over each of our lives that we find in Scripture. Learn to ask questions. Start to force them out of your mouth if you have to. May I pray for you? Would you pray with me? Could we meet for prayer? Errol Hulse said, one of the results of the revival that happened in Korea was the multiplication of daily early morning prayer meetings. Hulse questioned a Korean pastor recently, and he assured Errol Hulse that daily early morning prayer meetings, 5 a.m. in the summer, 6 a.m. in the winter, are part of the lifestyle of evangelical Christians in Korea across every denomination. Good news, if God starts to work powerfully in our lives, He's definitely going to frustrate our schedule. In 1866, Charles Spurgeon instituted daily prayer meetings at the tabernacle. 7 o'clock every morning. 7.30 every evening. The main tabernacle prayer meeting took place on Monday evening. Monday evening. With an average attendance of 3,000 for prayer. One of the main reasons I'm praying regularly for God to give us a church building is because of paragraphs like I'm about to read to you. Hull said, it is said that the weekly prayer meeting is the spiritual barometer of any local church. You can tell with a fair degree of accuracy what the church is like by the demeanor or substance of the weekly prayer meeting. Is there genuine evangelistic concern? If so, it will be expressed in the prayers. Is there a heartfelt longing for the conversion of unconverted family members? If so, it's sure to surface in the prayer meeting. Is there a world vision and a fervent desire for revival and for the glory of Christ among the nations of the world? Such a burden cannot be suppressed in the prayer meeting. Is there a heart agony about famine and war and the need for a gospel of peace among the suffering multitudes of mankind? The church prayer meeting will answer that question. Intercession in the prayer meeting will soon reveal a loving church that cares for those who are oppressed and weighed down with trials and many burdens. Those bearing trials too painful or personal to be described in public will nonetheless find great comfort in the prayer meeting. For there, for there, for there, the Holy Spirit is at work. I know we have long sermons and I do promise this one's about to close. But the number one comment in 12 years that I've received from guests is, what was that? Meaning, the half hour or so of corporate prayer. Followed by, as Brian did today, a pastoral prayer. Praying for our church members, the nations, local churches, so forth. Supplemented by smatterings of other prayers. And I like what Mark Dever said about praying in our church services. We should pray so much when we get together that lost people are bored. You see, this isn't a preaching station. This isn't an entertainment venue as is very obvious. This is a meeting at the feet of our Father where we listen to His words and mark it down for sure. Any church that hears from God, God will definitely hear from them. If God's Word does penetrate us, it will ricochet back to Him. Like the mist that comes up from the waterfall. As God's love pours onto us, our love can't help but respond back to Him. May the Lord grow us truly in united prayer. So friends, there's no good reason why you shouldn't come to Jesus. In Him you'll find every spiritual blessing you need. I prayed for every household of every member of our church this morning. I don't say that to break my arm, pat myself on the back. I prayed for every kid in every household and every adult this morning. But that's a regular pattern of your pastors and many others in this church. We're praying that you would know that Christ is for you. 
And that you would embrace Jesus now. That you would be able to say, who can bring a charge against God's elect? God justified me. You want to argue with God about me making him, making me his child? Take that up with God. But he made me his child. Who's going to condemn me? We, we are praying. The reason we pray is because we know salvation is a work of God. We are praying that you would believe that Jesus died for you, that He rose again from the dead, that He ever lives to make intercession for you, that He's coming back to make you beautifully, thoroughly glorious in the presence of God forever. We're praying that God would do that in your life because we can't say it eloquently enough and you're not good at believing that. You need God to act on you to make you alive spiritually. So come to Jesus. He's the true and greater Nehemiah. Nehemiah wouldn't come down from the wall because he had some intercession work to do. And Jesus, having come down to earth, is now on the wall of heaven and He's going to stay there and pray. He's not going to leave His post. He's praying and He's not going to stop praying until you're totally glorified. No condemnation in Romans 8 leads to no separation in Romans 8. And that's what Jesus came to do. And then, oh, that we would come to Jesus. We don't come to Him and then get on with the good stuff. No, no, no. That we, we would come to Christ and we would say like His apostles, we've been around you a little while now and we just keep noticing that you're praying all the time. Would you teach us to pray? If you spend time with Him, it'll be taught, but it'll also be caught. The highest privilege of our redemption, communion with God as our Father, that we can barge our little selves with confidence according to Hebrews 4 through the blood of Jesus. We can just barge right into the throne room and we can say, I need some help. I need grace. And we can come because of Jesus. Well, our response in just a moment will be as the instruments play, some will come to the Lord's table, some will remain seated. But every person, whether you remain seated or come, every person's invitation is to Jesus. So those who come to the supper are saying, yep, I believe that Gospel. I'm united to God's people. I'm part of a local church. I'm turning away from my sin. But I want you to come in a particular way today. Same would be true every week. I'm surrendering my life to this Jesus. I'm asking Him to apply this sermon to me. We're coming in response to the Gospel that we've heard today. And if you remain seated for whatever reason, Please don't distract the person next to you during those few moments. Instead, take advantage of this little opportunity because I assure you, when you walk out of these doors, chances are nobody's going to sit you down and say, why don't you just take a few moments and contemplate the Word of God? So just take a few moments before we dismiss, either seated or at the table, and come to Jesus. The instruments will play after I pray. And as they begin to play, you're invited to respond as the Lord leads. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you're the one who has told us, 1 Thessalonians 5, to pray without ceasing. And we know that the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus are the only ones who perfectly obeyed that command. And we thank you. We thank You that the Spirit intercedes for the saints, deeply groaning that we would be made more like Christ. And we thank You that Jesus the Lord pleads the merits of His blood, His risen victory, as the ground for which we should be accepted before You forever, finally and fully, one day soon, glorified. Thank You for the Spirit. Thank You for the Son. And we ask, Lord, that just like little brothers to our elder brother, we would begin to look more like Him. That You would teach us to pray. In fact, we confess that we are not good at it. We often don't enjoy prayer. We find excuses for why we shouldn't pray or can't pray. No, 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 Lord. By Your grace, would You cause today to be one of those miraculous turnings that You do? that this church, and I mean all of us, would be a people marked by constant communion with our God. Personal and interpersonal prayer. Would you cause the ladies of this church 
to be the kind of sisters who assail the throne room of heaven? Would you cause the brothers in this church to be the kind of men who live in the presence of the Holy of Holies, enjoying you and making intercession for and with one another? Would you cause us collectively when we gather either corporately like this or in small clusters to be people of sincere, genuine prayer? Would you cause us interpersonally to humble ourselves and ask our brothers and sisters for prayer and to pray with one another? Lord, we trust that all the great things that You've sovereignly planned to accomplish, You have planned to accomplish them in agreement with the prayers of Your people. So cause us to believe like the Holy Spirit does when we pray. Cause us to believe like Jesus does that You will glorify us because He has died for us. Cause us to believe, Lord. Teach us to pray as Jesus prayed. And we thank You, Lord, that He ever lives, ever lives to make intercession for us. What a God. As we come to the table, we'll respond to You in another way. We ask that Jesus Himself would hold the place of highest honor in our hearts. We ask this in His name. Amen.